This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Welcome in, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. It is Thursday, and we have quite a show for you, absolutely jam-packed, lots and lots of news to cover. But before we dive off into our weekly coronavirus update, as we always do on Thursday, I think it's only uh, pertinent that I mention that there is a birthday today. So Chris, one of my best friends and somebody that I've known for a really long time, you guys probably recognize him from the early days of The Patriot Preacher, if you remember some of my very, very early podcasts, which were very bad because I was not a very good broadcaster when I started out. Uh, he was actually my very first co-host. He sometimes joins me on the Geekin programs. By the way, he's going to be doing that again tomorrow, so he'll actually be on the episode uh, but, you know, I'm sure that he's at actually not watching the show right now because he's off doing fun birthday stuff. So I'm sure that that's uh, that's going on. But, you know, happy birthday, Chris, whether you're watching or not. Maybe you'll watch it later and get a kick out of this. So uh, thanks for everything you do, buddy. Now, let's go ahead and jump straight into the Alabama coronavirus update. Let's go ahead and get the latest statistics from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So you can see on our map here that the state of Alabama currently has 101,496 confirmed cases, 798,501 tested, 1,821 deaths, and 12,292 hospitalizations. Now, you may notice on that chart that Alabama has breached 100,000 confirmed cases. Now, there was a lot of hullabaloo about this, and of course, it is, well, I say it's unfortunate. I mean, the increase in cases really isn't necessarily a bad thing if a whole bunch of people are getting sick and not dying. And, and since the, that has been the continuing trend in the state for several months now, uh, we're not talking a small amount of time. That has been the trend for a uh, quite some time, actually. I would say I, I think that that trend started maybe mid to late April. So we've been in that pattern for quite some time now. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that we're getting more cases if those more cases are not leading to more deaths. And so we'll discuss some of that and, and discuss whether or not that is actually taking place. But the fatality rate this week is 1.79. And if we're going by the, CDC, uh, the CDC's estimation that roughly 10 times the amount of people actually have the coronavirus than we think, then that would mean that the actual number, the actual fatality rate, is 0.0179, which means that it is, you know, about uh, 0.2, roughly. So if we were to round up, that would be 0.08. So still significant, I mean, and still by far, you know, still, still a big deal. I'm not trying to mitigate that at all, but it is important to note that the, the fatality rate for the flu is 0.01 flat, which means that if this is the case, if this turns out to be the real number, and here's the thing, considering that our last week's estimation was 0.018, and this week it's 0.0179, I mean, that's basically exactly the same. Uh, you would obviously have to round up on that, but it, the, the point is it's staying stagnant, which is something that we haven't seen in a while. 
at first it was dropping like a rock when we started doing a lot more testing and, and finding out that a lot more people had the virus than originally did. It was dropping like a rock then. It, it went from being a fatality rate of about five, close to six at one point, if I'm not mistaken. It started dropping dramatically, and we eventually got down into the like uh, two-point uh, era, and we, we sort of lingered there for a little bit. Now we're under uh, 0.2, and now we are floating around at about where flu season is, really. Like, that that's where we are right now. Um, now, granted, this is still more... Can, uh, there are still more cases here. Or sorry, the fatality rate is still greater here than it is with the flu if you're looking at it overall. Because if one zero point zero one and one zero point zero eight, uh, one eight, sorry, that means that it's roughly, uh, you know, eighty percent more deadly than the flu. So that's nothing, you know, n nothing to just brush off and pretend like it's not a big thing, but. That's the thing. Our fatality rate is still roughly stagnant, and this thing is looking a lot more like the seasonal flu than originally projected. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at the new cases for coronavirus. We can look at our weekly averages here. So this is, of course, from the Alabama Department of Public Health. The Alabama new coronavirus cases, you can see our seven-day average there from August the 6th to August the 13th is 1,156. Our previous seven-day average is 1,415. So that is a decrease of 259. That is per day. So that is not a small deal. The fact that we are having a decrease of new coronavirus cases and we are doing so at a rate of roughly 260 per day you know, that, that's a pretty significant difference. This thing is starting to drop and, and to drop at a pretty quick rate. Now, the cases overall still up from where we would probably like to see them. But we are in a pretty quick downward trend. And by the way, if we're looking at our neighbors, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, now their numbers all vary a little bit. I left out Mississippi. Sorry, Mississippi. But if you look at all of our neighbors they're seeing kind of a similar thing. This area of the country is starting to go into a dip in new cases. And that is a good sign, again, depending on how you look at it. It could also be a bad sign if you're hoping to reach herd immunity very quickly and you're, you're looking at the fatality rate versus the number of infected. So, but either way, we were seeing a drastic increase in cases in this area of the country. Now we're starting to see a pretty significant decrease. So that is, you know, not something that is inconsequential. Let's go ahead and check out how we're doing with the mask mandate, because I know a lot of people are going to see this and say, see, finally a whole bunch of those red state governors there in the South caved, and now it's causing their rates to start going down. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but We'll go ahead and just for now look at the averages because we have been, at least in the state of Alabama, we have now had the mask mandate, which was started by Governor Kay Ivey. We have had that in place now for one month. And our 28-day average for July 16th through August the 13th, so today, that is since the mask mandate started, 1,400 and 76. Those are the daily new cases that we're having uh, on average since the mask mandate started. 
the previous 28-day average from June 18th to July 16th, the day that the mask mandate started, so this is the time before the mask mandate, was 1,156. So uh, looking at that, that is an increase of 320. We are actually seeing significantly higher rates because since we've had the mask, it's been about 1,400 per day. And since uh, in the time span directly before the mask mandate, we were having a little over 1,100 a day. So, you know, that, that is an increase of over 300. And that is not an insignificant number. Now, do I think that the masks are causing more cases? No, I don't think that's the case at all. But it certainly is showing that it's not helping. If we're having 320 new cases per day with the mask mandate, as we were before the mask mandate, and the whole purpose of the mask mandate has nothing to do with deaths, has nothing to do with hospitalizations, is to keep the case numbers down, we're definitely heading in the wrong direction if that is the case. Now, this week was significantly better than last week when it came to cases, and that's good. That means we are on a downward trajectory. But if you're looking at it at the month as a whole and compare pre, uh, no mask Alabama to mask Alabama, mask Alabama is doing significantly worse, which again, I don't think that that's caused by the mask, but I think it does pretty much definitively prove that the mask mandate is not helping us get our case numbers down. Furthermore, and this is a, another big part of this, uh, we're looking at hospitalizations here. Now, hospitalizations, there's not really a comparison that could be made effectively because the, the new system came into place uh, right around the time that the mask mandate went into effect. And so the, we, we would have to scale it on a completely different rubric. So we're just going to tell you what the recent hospitalization data looks like since that's the only thing we have to compare it to. This system's only been in place for, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe about five weeks, which, you know, th there'd be no way to effectively compare that to the era, the era before mask mandates, obviously, because of that short time span. There, there wouldn't be enough days before the mask mandate went into effect to tell how effective that was. So these are hospitalizations related to COVID. Our seven-day average for this week is 140. Last week, our seven-day average, 178, which is a decrease of 38. That's good. I mean, that's 38 Alabamians less getting hospitalized this week than last week. Again, uh, we're seeing that downward trend, I think, come into effect. Um, remember... This is important because I'm going to bring this up in a second. This is a lagging stat. So the fact that the hospitalizations are down moderately and our new cases are down a little bit more than that, at least week per week, obviously compared month to month, which we just did, the uh, uh, it's actually increased since the mask mandate went into effect. But the hospitalizations are on the decrease, at least from this week to the next. And then on our 14-day averages, our 14-day average... Uh, whoop, sorry, that was, uh, graphic was not added there. So, uh, that, that's going to be the hospitalizations for the state of Alabama. Now, let's go ahead and look at COVID deaths, because of course that is the most important statistic that we can look at, which is odd because nobody's actually talking about this stat in the media anymore. So let's go ahead and look at the coronavirus deaths here. 
So the seven-day average for coronavirus deaths is uh, going to be 23.9 for this week. So 23.9 Alabamians have lost their life every day to COVID-19 here in the state of Alabama this week. Last week, our average was 19.7. So the deaths are actually on the rise. You may notice that that's an increase of 4.2 per week. So that, that's a pretty stark increase. And so you may be sitting there scratching your head asking the question, why is this the case? Well, you remember that really big bump in cases and hospitalizations that we saw about two weeks ago? Since this is a lagging statistic, this is being reflected in the stats now. So since we're seeing a decrease, at least this particular week, so the, the previous week that we just went through, since we saw a stark decrease in new cases and hospitalizations this week, it would stand to reason that we will see another decrease happening two weeks from now when it comes to COVID deaths that would match up more or less with the new cases. Hopefully that is the case. Hopefully we have less people getting this disease and more, well, I don't necessarily think it's bad for people to get the disease. Hopefully it translates into less Alabamians dying, which is always a tragedy no matter how it happens. But this is an interesting stat as well. Let's go ahead and look at the 28-day averages. So the 28-day average for the period since the mask mandate started, because we are 28 days away from Governor Ivey's mask mandate, that 21-day average is 21 so 21.6 Alabamians dying since the mask mandate was put into effect. Before the mask mandate put into effect, the 28-day average is 14.3. That's a huge, huge difference because that is an increase in daily deaths of 8.1. So obviously, again, I'm not saying that this necessarily means that masks absolutely don't work. What it does mean is that mask mandates are not helping. That is objectively true no matter how you look at the numbers. We're seeing more cases and more deaths since the mask mandate went into effect. I imagine that the stats would bear that out if you were also looking at the hospitalizations. Unfortunately, the way that Alabama counts, it changed, and we can't really do that comparison. Uh, but it would stand to reason if both of those stats are reflective of one another that there's no reason to believe that hospitalizations wouldn't follow a similar sort of pattern. And so, definitively, the mask mandates just are not working. The stats have shown that every single week that we've been doing these comparisons to the era before mask mandates and the era after mask mandates. And for anybody that's saying, well, there's lagging statistics, well, yeah, I, I tell you about that. But here's the thing. This thing's incubation period is 14 days at the max. That's another thing that a lot of people don't talk about. Most of the time, your deaths do take place about two weeks after diagnosis. But remember that when you're looking at it overall, the deaths take place about 10-ish days after things start to get serious. And so looking at it there, it's actually a little bit shorter than that. And yet, here we are, almost an entire month, a full 28 days, four weeks after the mask mandate, and the numbers definitively show that the mask mandate is not doing what it was intended to do. And you can't blame this on, you know, external factors or the stats not catching up yet because we're a month out at this point. 
And so anybody that tries to peddle that simply is either being dishonest or doesn't understand how the data works. Now, here's what I'm predicting, and this is true because you saw that pretty substantial dip that we were talking about from uh, last week. So last week's was significantly higher. We had a pretty big dip this week, so our seven-day average was significantly less this week than last week. I think what we're, what we're doing is we're seeing the, the curve of a hill. So in other words, the reason that we're seeing such a dramatic decrease in the span of just a week is because we're going to start seeing our numbers go down. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. I genuinely don't know. This is just a prediction. This is speculation on my part. But I think based on some of the things we've seen from our neighbors in Georgia, our neighbors in Tennessee and Florida, that we're going to sort of crest that hill. And we've already somewhat started on the downward trajectory and, and our cases are probably going to stop dropping here pretty darn soon. If history is any teacher and if watching our neighbors, we're going to be following that pattern the way that we have for quite some time now. The statistics do tend to lag a little bit behind Georgia, but we have similar patterns in the ways in which this virus operates and functions if you're looking at our data to Georgia side by side. And so we're going to start seeing that decrease and it's probably just now really starting in earnest this week. So in the next couple of weeks, we may see some pretty dramatic decreases and the, the other stats, the lagging stats like the hospitalizations and deaths are probably going to reflect that as well. But here's the thing. The mask mandate starting over a month ago and the numbers looking as bad as they are you have to remember that Alabama and the country itself as a whole, just as a society, they were masking long before the mandate. So you can't look at that and say that it's the only X factor. It may be that masks have had some impact. I think that it's probably minuscule if it is any uh, impact. But the point is the mask mandate was over a month ago and it hasn't bore any fruit. In fact, our numbers are going in the opposite direction, or at least have been if you're looking at it as an average. People are going to try to make the case that the dip that we're about to see that I've just been talking about is going to be attributable to the mask, despite the fact that that happened over a month ago. They're going to try to say that the mask mandates are what caused this thing to start going downward. It's simply not true. Don't let them get away with saying that when there is no evidence to support that conclusion. In fact, there's a substantial amount of evidence to show the opposite. We just talked about some of the averages for things like cases and deaths. Actually, if you're looking at the month overall since the mask mandate put into effect, those stats have gotten worse, not better. And another great comparison that we can do to illustrate that, if you'll go ahead and look at this graphic, you can see here, this is our neighbor over to the east, Georgia. Well, if it'll come up, there we go. So this is our neighbor to the east, Georgia, and you can see these are the daily new cases. So these are new cases, not overall cases, in the state of Georgia. Now, it's important to note that Georgia has, at this point, they just don't have any kind of system in place to allow for mass shutdowns. They, they did shut down at one time. That is indeed true. But the thing is, Georgia, at least now, they don't have a mask mandate in place. None of that. And this is their stats. Now, I want you to compare this with stats from the state of California. So this is California's graph. 
I want you to compare the two. Georgia, California. Georgia, California. You see how similar these charts are? California has some of the most dracon draconian measures for this thing ever. Now, the peaks and valleys are a little bit more exaggerated in California's graph because they have a larger population, and so you're going to get more differentiation. But they line up almost perfectly. I mean, if you're looking at those two, Georgia obviously has the bigger population, or sorry, California obviously has the bigger population and thus a bigger swing in the numbers. But you see pretty much the same thing. They stay pretty much level until you get to roughly mid-June, and then they start exploding. And then after that, you see it trail off and kind of level off, and then you see a dip, and then you see a little bit of a resurgence. This is true in both cases, despite the fact that in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp actually has a law on the books that says that states can't even implement a local ordinance to mask up. And California has been masking since when? June the 18th. So, actually right around the time California's numbers started exploding, they had the mask mandate in place before that happened. Georgia has never had a statewide mask mandate, and yet their charts line up almost exactly. The masks are not making a difference. At least the mask mandates are. Maybe the masks are making a slight difference. I don't know. I imagine there's quite a few people in Georgia that actually are masking up. But it's very clearly evident, if you're looking at that chart from California, that the mask mandates are not causing cases to go down. In fact, they start the mask mandate right before their numbers start to explode. So there are going to be people that are trying to attribute the dip that's coming up to the mask mandates, there's simply no truth to it. The data does not lead you to that conclusion, and we must follow where the data goes if we're going to get any kind of real answers. Don't let them pull off, off the slide. Don't let them pull off this ridiculous notion that the mask mandates are what's saving us or what's stopping the cases from going crazy or anything like that. It's simply not true. There is no bit of data anywhere that suggests that masks are a very effective way of controlling this pandemic. It simply does not exist. Now, maybe one day they will produce data that shows that it does. Based on this, I rather doubt it. But maybe someday they will do that. But as of now, it simply does not exist. Every bit of data would suggest that it has no effect, no correlation whatsoever with how this thing spreads. It's just a simple fact of the matter. And maybe, like I said, they might even prove at some point that masks are an effective way to control it, depending on what kind of mask, because, you know, that's the new debate that just came up. They're saying some mask, yes, other mask, no, that kind of thing, which, again, is, is I don't think is an unreasonable discussion to have. But the point is, mask mandates certainly don't help. They've had no effect on them so much, uh, whatsoever. None. So, let's go ahead and move on to some local news. Auburn, yes, my alma mater, Auburn University, has vowed not to fire or take any disciplinary action whatsoever against Dr. Jesse Goldberg. 
Now, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Jesse Goldberg is, he is a... I have people that get on to me about that. He's not actually a professor. He's like some kind of adjunct professor or some kind of lecturer, but he's a teacher of English at Auburn University. And you can see this here. If you're looking, this is the tweet that sort of propelled him into the news for a second time here in the state of Alabama. This is one of his more recent ones. And you can see, I can't read some of it because of the profanity, but you can see it there on screen. For yourself, unless of course you're listening to this on the radio, but it says F every single cop, every single one. The only ethical choice for any cop to make at this point is to refuse to do their job and quit. The police do not protect people. They protect capital. They are instruments of violence on the behalf of capital. Now I've gone over the tweet already. You can go check out my previous daily dose of stupid where I was talking about it. But suffice it to say, that was just sort of the, the piece of news that propelled him into the national twilight. And by the way, I've actually acquired a different tweet uh, from another source from this same guy, Dr. Jesse Goldberg, which I was able to dig up with some help from somebody else. And this is, I mean, just so telling. So it says, since I guess there's some confusion today, whiteness is violence, abolish whiteness. Now, I understand that this is a low-hanging fruit. I get that this is an easy jab to make as a political commentator. But can you imagine if he had tweeted exactly the same thing about black people, or about Hispanic people, or Jewish people, or any other ethnic, you know, categorization we could throw people into? Uh, or sex, or anything else. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. This is the simple racism test. If you want to know whether or not a statement is racist or not racist, switch the races and see if it still sounds racist. Because I'm pretty sure, could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that if he had said the exact same thing about black and blackness, that we need to abolish blackness and blackness is violence, I think that he would have his office cleaned out by the end of the day. Let's just be real about that. That... I very much doubt that Auburn University would be willing to keep him on as a staff member anymore. And I want to make one thing abundantly clear here. Because Auburn did put out a letter that they, they essentially vowed that uh, they weren't going to take any action and uh, that part of the reason that they did that, and, and this was a reaction to a letter that they got sent from an organization called FIRE that was concerned about there being some kind of action taken against uh, Goldberg and... Uh, they didn't want, you know, any kind, his tweets to be held against him or his freedom of expression to be in any way inhibited. Here's the thing about all of that. As a general rule, I actually agree with that sentiment. As horrible and evil and racist as this guy is, and he is, I mean, <laughs> the, his, his words speak for themselves there. I don't think I have to do a whole lot of elaboration or embellishing on that. As hateful and racist as this guy is, as a general rule, I do not like the idea of people being fired for their opinions. But also, let's not kid ourselves. If this had been a racist statement against black people, there is absolutely no chance that this guy would still have a job. Let's just be frank about that. And <laughs> if that is the case, 
then I think that that would be a form of black privilege. I know that's going to make some people upset, but, you know, if, if people are attacking this race and that's unacceptable, but another guy is attacking another race, and yeah, that's okay. We'll just file that one under free speech, which I agree with. I'm just saying that there is a very observable double standard there. I think it's wrong for him to tweet this stuff out. I think it's wrong for him to tweet stuff out if it were against black people. I'm consistent on that. But I also don't like this idea that especially professors at a university where we're supposed to have a great a, a, a big diversity of ideas, even ideas that sometimes are abhorrent and evil, because those ideas need to be challenged on the battleground of ideas. There needs to be some intellectual sparring going on there. I don't have a problem with people hanging on to their job, and I know that that means that there are going to be an awful lot of evil, disgusting people like Dr. Jesse Goldberg, that get to keep their job as a result of my policy, I think that it's still a better option to have evil, disgusting people that get to keep their jobs, despite their evil opinions, than it would be to try to censor that and to try to have bureaucrats, or in this case, university officials, pick and choose what opinions they like and don't like, which things are, uh, which races or which groups of people are okay to attack and which ones aren't okay to attack. I'm far more comfortable with bad people keeping their jobs and just being almost religiously uh, um, devoted to free speech than I would be people just getting fired for saying something that offends somebody somewhere. That's not a good standard to have either, and if I have to choose between the two, I'm definitely choosing the one that favors free speech. And I'm not trying to set up some kind of false dichotomy. I'm not saying that we have to be either uber-sensitive or take absolutely nothing as though it, it could be offensive. I'm not saying that those are the only two options. I'm just pointing out here that there is a very, very obvious double standard, and I will always err on the side of liberty when I believe that there is a choice between that and pretty much everything else. But one of the things, because I've never called for this guy's punishment or firing at all. You'll notice I've done several segments on the guy. Not once have I ever called for him to be fired, no matter how much I despised what he said. I don't believe in that. And I'm not going to try to boycott Auburn or anything like that. I don't think that that's the right response e either. But I'm more concerned. I'm actually significantly more concerned for our country as a whole, our culture, our society. Because this guy gets to keep his job despite some of the stories that I'm about to share with you. For example, let's go ahead and look at this one. You can see a couple of headlines here. One is from the College Fix. Public University fired professor for calling microaggressions handout garbage lawsuit. So just a quick summary of this story. There was a professor. He saw a like a flyer or something that was going around campus about microaggressions. Uh, one of them had fallen onto the floor, fallen off the wall or something like that, been dropped by a student. Then he picks it up and writes on the board, uh, pick something like pick up your trash, pick up your garbage, something like that. And so basically it was a joke. And it was one that was intended as a dig, probably. Like it seems to me, unlikely, based on my reading of this, that this was something that was inadvertent. I mean, it seemed like he did have some hostility towards the ideas, which I don't blame him. I have some hostility towards the ideas espoused on that paper as well. But the point is, he did that as a joke, sort of jabbing at the students. 
and that joke cost him his job because he doesn't like the microaggressions handout and made a joke about how terrible it is. I thought the whole point of college was to be challenged by new ideas and to actually value free speech, but they certainly didn't do so at the University of Texas, Austin. Here's another one from the Washington Times. Student berates professor who refused to participate in No White's Day of Absence. So, for those of you who may not remember this, when this happened at Evergreen College, there was a professor that the uh, students had organized a day of absence where all the white people were not supposed to show up on campus. This wasn't a campus-sanctioned event. It was just a group of students that decided this one day arbitrarily. It wasn't like a university policy. Thank goodness. It was completely voluntary. And yet, this guy wind, wound up getting forced out because he was so harassed by the students, and eventually he had to resign. And so both of those professors... There was no calls for, I mean, there was from the right, but I don't remember calls from university for uh, various universities and the broader university community to protect these people on the basis of free speech. I just, I, th there seems to be a problem with that as well, because it seems as though, it seems as though that when this stuff happens, it only happens when the person that is doing the offending is somebody that espouses some kind of idea that's not even necessarily right-wing, just somewhat disagrees with the left. Now, uh, the university professor at Texas, he was a business professor. There's no way to know his political leanings, per se. But since he was a business professor, it's probably pretty safe to assume that he wasn't like a wild leftist progressive. But the guy at Evergreen College actually was. He was a biology professor. And he's actually pretty darn far on the left. The reason that he didn't want to participate in the day of absence where there were no white people allowed on campus that day is because he said that would be segregation and that's wrong. He's taking the stance of Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, that we shouldn't be segregating one another. That The best way to live in harmony and to understand one another is to, you know, actually spend time with one another and to not say to a person of a different race, you're not allowed here. This is only for the people of this race. That's segregation. And he said that was wrong. The guy is a leftist. He just happened to disagree with some uber-radical leftist on this one issue, and that was enough for him to lose his job at the university despite being there for many years. Let's look at a couple of, uh, a couple of other examples here. You can see this one from Fox News. Dean fired after saying Black Lives Matter, but also everyone's life matters. In email, recent events recall a tragic history of racism and bias that continue to thrive in this country. This is her speaking in this email. Uh, this is a dean of nursing, by the way. And she says, I despair for our future as a nation if we do not stand up against violence against anyone. Black lives matter, but also everyone's life matters. And then she continues on a little bit later. The dean added that she would not be pursuing legal action against the schools because, quote, I know this would fuel conservative opposition to the BLM movement, and that would be an anathema to me. So I want you to take all of this in. This dean of students is not somebody that is some kind of wild, far-right extremist. 
or, you know, I guess they would define that as somebody that's anywhere to the right of like, I don't know, uh, Nancy Pelosi at this point. Anybody to the right of Nancy Pelosi is some kind of right-wing radical, according to a lot of these people. But this is not somebody that was that. She says in the email that Black Lives Matter and also everyone's life matters. She's not disagreeing with Black Lives Matter. She's not saying that people shouldn't say Black Lives Matter. She says it. She just adds in the addendum, but there are other lives that matter too. This is what I find so hilarious, that if ever you say that you don't like the phrase Black Lives Matter, or if you ever utter the phrase that all lives matter, people immediately come back with vitriol and spite. But then when you say, uh, they'll immediately say something to the effect of, well, saying Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that all lives don't matter. But then when you say all lives matter, they get offended by that. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you would assume that Black Lives Mattering, if, if you're saying that we're not saying that all lives don't matter, well, then why does it bother you when you say all lives do matter? When, when this, like this nursing dean says that everyone's life matters, that you try to get her fired. And by the way, to further prove that she is not some kind of person on the right, she's not, you know, somebody that would ideologically get along with me, she is so far on the left that she refuses to pursue legal action against the university that fired her, or that, you know, suspended her at the very least. She refuses to take any kind of legal action against them. Why? Because she says that the people on the right would use it as ammo against Black Lives Matter. She's so in favor of Black Lives Matter, she is putting her own self-interest aside to help the movement. This is not a right-wing person. And yet, because she happens to say one thing that is slightly out of step with the radical leftist ideology, that is Black Lives Matter, they want to get her kicked out. It's just unbelievable. Here's another example. And these, by the way, aren't ancient history. These have all happened within the past three years, most of them recent. You can see this one from Reason Magazine. UCLA Business School lecturer placed on leave for email to students rejecting request for exam leniency for black students. So this happened just a few months ago when everything was shutting down uh, because of the or they were they were trying to shut things down for the George Floyd thing. So th this is the email that this professor sent that has him placed on leave now. Thanks for your suggestion in the email below that I give black students special treatment given the tragedy in Minnesota. Of course, talking about George Floyd's death. Do you know the names of the classmates that are black? How can I identify them since we've been having online classes only? Are there any students that may be of mixed percentage, such as a half black, half Asian, oh, sorry, mixed parentage, such as half black, half Asian, what do you suggest I do with them? A full concession or just half? Also, do you have any idea if any students are from Minneapolis? I assume that they are, pro they pr are probably especially devastated as well. I'm thinking that white students from there might be possibly even more devastated by this, especially because some people might think they're racist even if they're not. My TA is from Minneapolis, so I don't know. I can probably ask her. Can you guide me on how you think I should achieve a no-harm outcome 
since our sole course grade is from the final exam only. One last thing strikes me. Remember that MLK famously said that people should not be evaluated based on the color of their skin. Do you think that request would run afoul of MLK's admonition? So this is a guy that, again, I don't know what his political leanings are in this particular case. There's really not an indication from that, but he's saying, how do I even know which students are black? We've been doing online classes. I've not actually met my students, so I don't know which ones are black and which ones aren't. And then asking some, you know, valid questions if we're going to do the intersectionality Olympics and, and try to, you know, give a handicap to anybody that may be black is like, what about people that are half Asian, half black? Do, do they get like some points, but not all the points? Uh, do they get a little extra time, but not as much as the full black students? What about people from Minneapolis that have seen this happen in their community? See, here's the thing that this ridiculous ideology does not acknowledge. Any human being, regardless of their skin color, should have been traumatized by George Floyd's death, by watching that video of a guy just kneeling on a guy's neck for seven minutes. Now, granted, adding the full context does help you understand that a little bit. I mean, not the kneeling on the neck part. That whole thing is understandable. But what I'm saying is adding the context, which we now have extra video that shows the lead up to that, it helps you understand at least why the police were talking to this guy, uh, which, you know, does shed some light on how the uh, how it started and also helps us understand that, no, this wasn't something like the guy was just trying to kill him, that there was probably not malicious intent. Now, homicide, manslaughter, yeah, those charges absolutely should be levied against this police officer. Absolutely no question about that. But wouldn't seeing that put you in some kind of trauma? Like, wouldn't that affect you no matter what your skin color is? It should. It's a human problem. It's a tragic thing that happened. It's not something that would only affect black students. And when it comes to people from Minnesota, that's something that hits pretty close to home. Why wouldn't white students from Minnesota probably have a much more close connection to it than black students from, I don't know, California or something like that? Like, there's all this ridiculous level of intersectionality gymnastics that you have to do in your head to be able to try to figure out, you know, which class is, is more hurt and victimized by the other one. And then he just ends with a simple question of, but MLK wanted us not to judge people based on the color of their skin, but by their merits. So why would I want to do this and give extra leniency to kids based on their skin color when Dr. King said we're not supposed to do that? I mean, it's a fair question. And I think this is really hitting at the core of the reason that an awful lot of people are looking at the situation of politics, the, the situation that we see our universities in, and are calling for blood. I'm not advocating for it, but are calling for blood when it comes to Dr. Jesse Goldberg at Auburn. This guy can go on a profanity-laced, hateful rants against entire races, entire classes of people, and an entire profession in the form of police, saying hateful, disgusting things. And he gets to keep his job. And all of the examples that we've seen now, all of these people either have lost their job or are on the verge of doing so. Now, this isn't Auburn's fault. 
Auburn's not the one that fired all of the other professors that we just listed, and I understand that. We can't hold Auburn responsible for that. But do you understand, seeing all of that, why people would be legitimately concerned about those things? Do you understand how a person can see all of this writing on the wall and how whenever somebody does get fired for saying something that is even slightly out of step with the left, that people lose their jobs for that at universities? But all of a sudden, no matter how vile or vicious somebody is towards white people or the cops, well, that's free speech and we have to protect it. It's all free speech. And they should all be protected. I'm consistent with that standard. And I don't really want Jesse Goldberg to be fired. But what he said is miles more offensive than anything that these guys did. It just, it does go to show that we have a really big gap in those. So the final breakdown that I want to give all of this is I think this guy actually wants to be fired. I think he is begging Auburn University to fire him. He's Kaepernicking. I think what's going on here is, is basically the same thing that happened with Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick saw that his football career was going downhill and going downhill very quickly. And so he had to figure out some kind of way to be able to, you know, sustain himself or stay relevant or stay in the league. And that's where all the protests started and where he started getting all this publicity. It's interesting to me that the kneeling only started when it was very clear that he was not going to be a quarterback for much longer. I mean, he knows this. He follows football. He saw the writing on the wall and had to do something to stay in the spotlight. And, you know, to his credit, he did. And you'll notice that, like, literally the day after, first of all, there were the NFL bent over backwards giving him opportunities to try to get in. And he kept snubbing them, kept, you know, not really doing anything to try to get back into the NFL because Colin Kaepernick does not want to be in the NFL when he could be making all this money, probably more than he ever would as a quarterback, for not actually doing anything except ranting about white privilege or something. And I think Jesse Goldberg's doing exactly the same thing. He really, really wants to be fired so that he can claim victim status, just like Colin Kaepernick. Have you ever seen the Seinfeld episode where George is being recruited by the Mets to be one of their scouters? But the thing is, he can't actually do that. Like, they can't make him an offer until he's no longer under contract with the Yankees. So what he does is he goes around intentionally trying to get fired from the Yankees so that the Mets can make him an offer. Uh, like at one point he's driving around in the parking lot and he has the World Series trophy on the back of his car, like dragging it behind his car and yelling out that Steinbrenner's awful and your accomplishments mean nothing. And at one point he's like wearing Babe Ruth's jersey and spills a meatball sub on it. Like it's a it's a hilarious episode, but he's doing all these crazy things to try to get fired. And the line there is, I want people to watch me and go, wow, that guy got canned. And I think Jesse, I or Je Jesse Eisenberg, that's an actor. Uh, Je I think Jesse Goldberg is trying to do the same thing here. I think the exact same thing is happening that he really wants that Colin Kaepernick sort of victim status. And he thinks that getting fired, especially from a fairly conservative compared to other university school in the deep, deep South is going to propel him there. 
And frankly, I'm just thrilled that Auburn has not seen fit to give in to his victimhood fantasy. And Auburn has shown that they actually do care about free speech, and I would like to think that they would have the same standard if the shoe were on the other foot. So as much as I, I hate that this guy is at Auburn, as, as much as it detests me that he is at my alma mater, at the same time, I respect Auburn for actually taking free speech seriously, and as much as I hate that this guy gets to keep his job, I'm willing for him to keep his job if we're not kicking professors out for every little thing that the student body finds mildly offensive or somewhat out of step with the left. It's the better standard to have. So before we go to a commercial break, I've got to share with you some of the coolest news that you were ever going to hear because it's Thursday, lots of crap is happening in the world, and we need something that'll make us smile. So here's the deal. There's a Whataburger truck. Yes, you heard me correctly. Whataburger is mobile. They've got a truck. This is the picture of the new Whataburger truck, or the Whata truck. I don't know if that's what they're calling it. Man, check that out. And that's not just like your standard food truck. That thing is a bus. And you can see, like, I love the design. I love the, uh, it's, it's not hiding the fact that it's a Whataburger truck. We'll put it that way. It's very over the top. So this whole thing was done because Whataburger is celebrating 70 years in business, which, frankly, I'm a huge Whataburger fan, and I had no idea that they were 70 years old. That stunned me because they've only been around, at least in my memory, Gosh, I only remember them actually being around to where I could eat at Whataburger maybe since I was in high school at the absolute oldest. So I thought they were maybe like 20 years old. I had no idea they'd been around for 70 years. But yeah, I thought that was pretty awesome. Whataburger is 70 years old. And this is from a Whataburger press release. They say, the truck is truly a Whataburger on wheels. 36 foot long, holy cow. 36 foot long with 24 feet of cooking space powered by a 30,000 watt generator featuring a four foot grill. It has the same burger making power as a brick and mortar restaurant. Man, that is so, so cool. Technology. Only in America, you know, only in America could you get a, a, a burger truck that has the same burger making capacity as the actual brick and mortar store. Uh, gosh, I love this country. And uh, also, according to that same Whataburger press release, in 2021, the truck will hit the road for a multi-state tour. This is just great. With stops in Whataburger's existing markets and cities, the brand expands into new markets. The truck will give new locations and fans a taste of what's coming. Please come to Montgomery. Come on, Whataburger truck. I need you to come to the river region. It doesn't even have to be Montgomery. It can be Prattville. It can be Wetumpka. I need to not have to drive 40 to 50 minutes to Clanton to be able to get a Whataburger. I need this to be in my life. Then they continue on. Uh, let's see. What's more, it will be available to help during natural disasters and emergency events where a hot Whataburger meal can make a difference. This is really cool. And by the way, the Whataburger truck going to emergency locations, that is new. But Whataburger helping out with emergency situations, that is not new. In fact, you may recall that during Hurricane Harvey, they made a point to bring uh, thousands upon thousands of Whataburger meals 
to different people that had been affected by Hurricane Harvey, specifically to first responders, people that were there helping, that kind of thing. Uh, one of my favorite videos, I don't know if you remember this, but back in Hurricane Harvey, there was uh, they were doing this where they were delivering emergency supplies to people in need in Hurricane Harvey, and, and a whole bunch of firefighters that had come from New York were there. And one of the firefighters opens up a, he's in Texas, remember, and Whataburger's a Texas-based company. He opens up a Whataburger, and he's like, wow, I, I was not expecting a fast food burger to be this big. Everything's bigger in Texas. And he bites into it, and he's just delighted and astounded. It's really, really hilarious. But, man, Whataburger. Gotta tell you, I am so looking forward to that truck. We'll take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a second on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. And we do have a interesting story for you out of AL.com. Now, this is an opinion column. So it's it's not, you know, a, an attempt at objective journalism. So I did want to go ahead and throw that out here. It's a article by a guy named Roy S. Johnson. If you've read a whole bunch of AL.com's opinion pieces, his name comes up quite a bit. He's done a lot of writing for them. He's a regular columnist. So you're probably familiar with his work, and he does happen to be black, which I normally don't mention. It's just it happens to be relevant because he talks a lot about that in this particular piece. But here's the headline to this. It has to do with the VP pick from yesterday. Kamala Harris may be blacker than you. Well, she's certainly blacker than me. I think that anybody, <laughs> considering I'm whiter than sour cream, I think that uh, that would be a, a fair assessment for me. But uh, as usual, Royce Johnson, most of it's drivel, and he starts actually picking it up and, and getting to the thrust of his story, you know, way down almost past the first page of his article. So th this is where his article really starts taking off. Basically, the gist of it is that he's upset that there are some people that are suggesting that Kamala Harris is not black enough. And this is where he goes with this. Black people have variously challenged my black card, even though I couldn't leave home without it. In my youth, mostly because of my diction, mom, a teacher, did not tolerate Ebonics even before there was Ebonics, and affinity for good grades. Later, I'd get the racial side eye when I, uh, excuse me, when it was learned, I spoke a little French, knew how to swim, didn't think all white people were racist, and wasn't at all intimidated by white people. Which I think is slightly racist because it suggests that the vast majority of black people are intimidated by white people, which I've not been my experience in my interactions with, you know, really any of them, to be perfectly honest. I've never even heard of that. So that's interesting. And then he continues on. When it was discovered I really sucked at basketball, some folks wanted to slice up my card like it had expired. It's ridiculous, of course. Infuriating. It's dumb. Dumb as the paper bag test we used so long ago to discriminate against each other. Dumb and heinous as the historic origins of that test, the raping of black enslaved women by white slave owners, which led to the delineation between house... I'm just quoting the article here. Don't get mad at me, YouTube. Negroes and field Negroes, which led to, you can't stop me if you've heard this, the insidious paper bag test, which fed generations of internal 
borgerous discrimination of my darker-skinned brothers and sisters by my lighter-skinned brothers and sisters. Dumb is the one-drop rule in a law in ten states, yes, including Alabama, in the early 20th century uh, that held if just one of your ancestors was black, you were black, period. Eight other states had a blood fraction rules defining blackness as having a, as little as one-sixteenth black blood in your veins, hence one drop. Now, and for too long, some of us want to fight about it, want to evaluate, substantiate, and validate the blackness of other black people. You know what's so funny about this? I actually agree. I agree with the main thrust of what he just said there. Now, I, I agree with Roy Johnson on pretty much nothing. Just about every word that he writes, at least with, you know, your John Archibalds or your Kyle Whitmires, I'll occasionally be like, okay, he makes a good point there. Even if I don't totally agree, I see where he's going. Roy Johnson, I pretty much never agree with anything that he says. But this makes total sense to me. The thrust of what he is saying here, I can totally get on board with, which is we should not be judging people based on the color of their skin. More importantly, that doing some kind of weird self-evaluation of how black somebody is is just a waste of time and it's dumb. And the same thing would be true if we were trying to make a test of how white a person is. I mean, other than like the goofy, funny uh, internet polls that I've taken some of them and they say that I'm not that white, which I contend means that the poll is completely wrong. I'm, uh, I'm like the whitest guy on earth. I can't jump or any of that. It's just the whole thing. But I don't know, just reading this, gauging a person's blackness, just like gauging their ness when it comes to any other race, is just dumb. And I agree with it the whole sentiment that all this stuff is ridiculous and, and why are we worried about this stupid garbage? It's a giant waste of time. I'm right there with him on this. Unfortunately, this is not the position he retains, not just in other papers or other things that he's been written. Let's just look a few paragraphs down and he completely contradicts himself. So this is further down in that very same article. Today, pretty much every black person is mixed with something. I have Native American lineage, and that's cool. Well, that's cool. I mean, uh, you already got more than Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> uh, that's that's common in Alabama. Just about everybody, black, white, whatever, you've, you've probably got at least some Native American in you. I've got a little bit in me. I don't know exactly how much. I can guarantee it's more than Elizabeth Warren. Until, <laughs> I'm sorry, he continues on. Until, well, to some, it isn't. To some who want to whine and rant that Kamala Harris isn't black for some reason, maybe because the vice presidential Democrat nominee's mother is Indian, uh, in parentheses South Asian, I don't get the distinction there, and her father is Jamaican, or maybe because of ignorance. Harris was born in Oakland, California, America, check, one of the blackest cities in America, check, although, and by the way, I'm, I'm not adding the checks, he's saying the checks. Although her parents split when she was five, Harris and her baby sister, Maya, were often dragged to local civil rights marches and serenaded at home, reported by the BBC, as their Hindu mother sang along with the soulful likes of Aretha Franklin and her father spun jazz vinyls like John Coltrane and Theo, uh, Theonius Monk, Black, Czech. 
The two girls sang in the children's choir at the 23rd Avenue Church of God in Oakland, a black church, Czech. Harris attended Howard University, a crown jewel among historically black colleges and universities. She is joined by uh, she joined Alpha Kappa Alpha, incorporated the first black sorority, Czech. By some measures, Harris may be blacker than some black folks who doubt their blackness. But a few paragraphs ago, none of that stuff was supposed to matter, right? Like, gauging how black a person was was an exercise in futility, I thought. I mean, I thought you were making the case that all of this junk is a waste of time and we shouldn't be concerned with how black somebody is or how white somebody is, that this is something that just doesn't matter. And it shouldn't. I agreed with that. So why are you wasting all your time trying to make the case that Kamala Harris is really black? Because I don't see really any of those things that make a person really black because I don't see that as necessarily being a thing. I mean, there are white people that like John Coltrane. There's black people that like Michael Jackson, a white artist. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. Um, but that's... I don't, I don't get that. This whole identity politics thing is just so ridiculous and pointless. Like, would Kamala Harris be less black if she grew up in a white neighborhood in Iowa and went to, I don't know, Northwestern University? Would she be not black then? See, he, he tries to make the case that none of that stuff should matter, that she should be judged based on her merit, and then he does a complete 180 and goes, but she has all these black things in her history, and she may even be blacker than some of the black people reading this article. Well, you gotta pick a camp. Like, either blackness is really important, or it's not. And defining blackness as going to historically black schools or... Uh, engaging in quote-unquote black activities. Uh, what if she had sung in the choir in a white church? Would that make Kamala Harris less of a black person? Now, granted, she's just as much Indian as she is black, so I don't know exactly how that shakes out, and I'm talking about it, of course, in, in the genetic sense, but I, I just don't understand this mentality. I think of people as being individuals and their activities don't make them whiter or blacker or anything. That's just a thing that is fixed that you can't change. That's your genes. None of this really makes any sense to me. I mean, just a, like, what, six paragraphs ago, he was talking about anybody that tries to gauge somebody's blackness as discrimination. That's the way he phrased it. I didn't. He said that they were using it as a way to discriminate against other black people, and then he goes into this long tirade about how when you do gauge Kamala Harris's black, uh, blackness that she's blacker than everybody else. Well, aren't you just engaging in the same behavior that you, in this same article, said was wrong and was used to discriminate against other black people? Dude, pick a side, man. Like, have some level of consistency here. He continues on in the same article. I bought the social media debate about Harris's blackness to Dr. Angela Lewis Maddox, professor of political science at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. She pretty much went at, uh, apologetic. Why are we having this discussion, she said, with emphasis, a lot of emphasis. Race is a construct created in America to deal with the hierarchy. We are a race of people America created. Okay. 
other other countries deal with ethnicity and pride. America said if we were one eighth black, we were black. Period. Yeah, race is not a construct, and America didn't create black people. Black people been around a long time before America ever existed. Seriously, this woman, I, I don't understand any of the rationale behind here. Here's the thing that's funny to me about this, and the same thing with, with gender, because they try to do the same thing with gender. Well, it's just a social construct that people made up. No, it's real. It exists. I also think it's funny that this is the same crowd of people that are telling me that if you see color, then you're racist, but also if you don't acknowledge that color is real, you're racist. Like, if you say, I don't see color. If you try to say that, well, that, that just proves that you're racist, according to people like Maya D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility. That, that proves you're racist if you don't see color, and if you do see color, you're also racist. So you're just racist no matter what you do. That's the point. There's not a right way to behave or a wrong way to behave. If you're not black, you're just racist, and there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> That's the rationale of some of these ridiculous people. But in, in just in this internal statement, there's contradictions. Because she's saying essentially that race is just a construct that was created by America, which is ridiculous on a number of levels. Black people pre-existed America by quite some time. Racism also pre-existed America by quite some time. It's, it's existed for virtually as long as human beings have existed. Now, it probably didn't exist so much after, like, you know, the early years because everybody was one race. But it's set in pretty darn early. You can look through biblical history. You can look through secular history. Racism is pretty much always there in one form or another. It wasn't always connected to slavery. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the point is, regardless of that, racism pretty much always existed and is going to always exist. It's unfortunate, but that's part of mankind's uh, sinful, evil nature. I wish it were different, but it's not. And what's hilarious is, well, if race is just a construct, then black people aren't a thing. And neither are white people, and neither are any other kind of people. It's not a social construct. Like, there are legitimately genetic differences in black people and white people. That's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean they're unequal. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying there. That doesn't mean that one is more valuable than the other. But they try to have their cake and eat it, too. They try to say that, oh, race is just a social construct that doesn't exist. Also, it's the most important thing ever. Well, no, it's one or the other. If it's just this imaginary thing that was created out of whole cloth, which is, again, like I said, ridiculous on a number of levels. Race has existed for a very, very long time. The, virtually the entirety of, of human history. If it exists and it's real, and there are actual genetic differences. Some people have more melanin in their skin. That's just a fact of life. But it's trivial. See, that's the thing. I think it exists, and I think it's real, and I think that that's self-evident, but I also think it doesn't matter very much, because I believe all people are created in the image of God and therefore equal before God, and that's the only thing that really matters. What's funny about them is they say it's not real, it's all... It's all a big hoax or something, and also it's the most important thing that has ever existed. Well, make up your mind, people. Um, and <laughs> I, I tell you what, I can't, I can't even go on in this. We'll, we'll be here all night. I'm just going to go on and continue in this article. I also reached out to Dr. Henry Louis Gates, the esteemed author, producer, Emmy Award winner, filmmaker, and Alphonse Fletcher University professor at the director of Hutchins Center for African-American 
research and Harvard University. Dude, you've got to shorten that resume. It's <laughs> way too long. Anyway, he says, and I quote, this debate is ridiculous. He said in an email, of course she is black and Jamaican and Indian too. Yeah. Of course, that kind of completely counteracts what the last person that you coined said, which is saying that race isn't even a thing. Whatever. And then he finishes out the article this way. Quote, this is a diversion, an effort to depress the black vote and women, added Lewis Maddox. If we get caught up, she paused to breathe. Our responsibility at this point as black folks is to do whatever we can to ensure as many black folks show up at the polls in November 3rd, period. All right, well, if what she is suggesting, in other words, the reason that people are questioning whether or not Kamala Harris is really black or not is some kind of attempt to get pe black people to not show up to the polls and that, you know, the value of Kamala Harris being on the ticket with Joe Biden should encourage people getting out the black vote. I'm sorry, there's just nothing to that. And I'm not saying this because I'm in any way questioning whether or not Kamala Harris is really black or not. What I'm questioning is whether or not she has any rapport with black voters, and I mean like whatsoever. Joe Biden does not need help getting the black vote. Joe Biden already has the black vote. Granted, any Democrat already automatically, because they have a D behind their name, has an edge with black voters because they tend to vote overwhelmingly in favor of Democrats. However, even if that were not the case, even among Democrats in Democratic circles, Joe Biden does very well amongst black voters for a couple of reasons. First of all, compared to the rest of the Democrat Party, He's not as socialist as them. Now, he's still very socialist in nature, but he doesn't seem like one of the guys that is radically socialist, especially on the social issues. And black people as a whole actually tend to be very socially conservative. They may be fiscally lib liberal, but they tend to be pretty socially conservative. And so they tend to not like people that are uber, uber radical on a lot of the social issues. Uh, a perfect example of that in this previous primary, they did not like Pete Buttigieg because he was uber liberal on things like that and was very aggressive towards things like churches, which black people tend to attend on a pretty regular basis, far more so than their white counterparts. But if, you know, just the anecdotal stuff or, or the, uh, the political math that I'm spitting out isn't convincing you, then maybe take a look at this graph Real quick, this is from a poll, a survey that was taken by YouGov in November 2019. This was back when Kamala Harris was actually still in the race. And you can see there, I've highlighted the demographics and how they break down on their preferred candidate. When it comes to, quote unquote, the black vote, Joe Biden's got 47%. The only person, the next two people that are tied for second when it comes to quote unquote the black vote to him are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who each have 12%. Even combined, they barely have half of the black vote that Joe Biden does. Joe Biden does not need help in this particular sphere of influence. Now, how much of the black vote did Kamala Harris get? 4%. Tulsi Gabbard got three. 
The idea that Kamala Harris is somehow helping Joe Biden with the black vote is absurd. If anything, she's hurting him. I mean, uh, th that's a crushing victory by any rubric that you could use in the political sphere. Joe Biden is destroying everybody else when it comes to who black voters prefer. And Kamala Harris can barely get 4%, barely eking out Tulsi Gabbard. And look at that. Elizabeth Warren? Elizabeth Warren is one of the whitest human beings on planet Earth. And we can say that definitively because we've seen her 23andMe. <laughs> she is one of the whitest people to have ever existed. And she was getting three times the amount of black people voting for her than Kamala Harris. Maybe what is going on here, and this is funny because I'm giving, actually, interestingly enough, black people more credit than Roy Johnson is. Maybe black people don't just see, that's a black person. I'm voting for them. Doesn't work that way. Maybe black people actually are voting who they perceive as being the person that most aligns with them, you know, whether or not they actually do or not is a different story. But, you know, like white voters, they vote for the person that they perceive as being the best one for the job. That they don't just see a person with a black skin and think, I have to vote for that person. It's interesting that Roy Johnson seems to think that black people are just going to press the button or pull the lever for anybody that happens to be on the ticket or as long as the ticket has somebody with black skin on it. And by suggesting that she's not really black, they might be like, well, maybe we shouldn't vote for her if she's not really black. I tend to think that black people are smarter than that. I guess Roy Johnson doesn't. I mean, for Pete's sake, there were 8% of black voters in that poll that were undecided. There were more black people in that poll that said, I'm not sure who to vote for or would vote for nobody rather than vote for Kamala Harris. She simply, for whatever reason, does not, and I could go into the reasons I think that, that actually she doesn't do very well with black voters, but the point is, the idea that her blackness is on trial and the fact that some people don't think she's black might be a deterrent from black people turning out and voting, Joe Biden does not need help with that. Joe Biden will be just fine. And I think that it's pretty darn racist to suggest that black voters might see that, oh, there's not a black person on the ticket. I don't think that we should go out and vote. Joe Biden's doing fine in that realm. I may not like that they all want to vote for Joe Biden, but that is the way that the math shakes out. What's funny about this whole thing, though, is Roy Johnson completely misses why people on the right are pointing out that Kamala Harris isn't really black. And it's almost always done tongue-in-cheek. Nobody's really serious about it. Look, nobody on the right actually legitimately cares whether or not Kamala Harris is really black or not. We don't. We think of people as individuals. We don't think of them as a list of check marks that they can pop off on how many of the oppressed classes I can claim for my own. That's not how people on the right think. Never has been. We think of people as individuals that should be rewarded based on their merits and ideas, 
not the color of their skin or what's in their pants or any of the other things that seem to be super important to Democrats right now. I mean, Joe Biden literally said that he, ha- he was going to pick somebody that was black and female. Well, that means that the most important qualification for the job was not, would they be a good vice president? Would they be able to step up to the role of president if, you know, it called upon that? Are they going to follow the Constitution? Throw all that out the window. Uh, do they have black skin and do they have the right set of genitals? Apparently, that's the biggest qualification to Joe Biden. But people on the right don't think about that. The reason we're poking fun of you Democrats for caring about that stupid crap is because it's really important to you, so much so that it's the most important qualification when it comes to picking a running mate. And even in doing that, you pick somebody that, you know, may not be as black as some people think of, like somebody that actually came from Africa. And the funniest thing about all of this is that Kamala Harris also happens to be a person that slept her way to the top with Willie Brown and also is the, I believe, great-granddaughter or great-great-granddaughter of a slaveholder in Jamaica. Now, again, I don't think that you should be held responsible for that you carry over any kind of racial guilt because of what your great-grandparents did. I don't believe that. I think it's ridiculous to hold somebody to that standard. But the point is the left does, and that's why we point stuff like that out. For example, if I point out that a Jewish person is not acting uh, consistently with their beliefs because they're sitting there eating a bacon cheeseburger, I'm not saying that I believe eating bacon cheeseburgers are immoral. I am pointing out that he is not being consistent with his own stated ideology. That's what I'm doing there, and this is what is happening with people on the right when they're saying, hey, Kamala Harris isn't really black. They're poking fun at the ridiculous standard that the left has set up for itself. That's what's going on here. And it goes completely over Roy Johnson's head, who actually surprisingly manages to make some pretty darn racist statements in his attempt to explain that Kamala Harris actually is black. I... Again, the whole thing is just a crap show from beginning to end. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, this is a local one. The Daphne cheerleaders in Daphne, Alabama, so, you know, little town in South Alabama, they got in trouble, and I'm using that word, you know, sort of loosely, but they got in the news at the very least for a social media post because a petition has been filed against them and it had to do with them uh, posting on social media this picture of them posing with a shirt that has the likeness of the rebel flag on it. So you can see there the picture of these girls from Daphne High. They're holding a t-shirt that says, I heart redneck boys. And in the heart, you can see the, the sort of the cross of the, what, what is commonly referred to as the rebel flag. So you can see that there's, it's obviously just a spoof off of being in the South. That, that's what it's intended to do. But there was a change.org petition that was started over this that now has over 10,000 signatures to get them kicked off the team as a result of this. And that's because on their cheerleading squad, there was a black cheerleader named Reagan Coleman who actually quit the team and started, her mom is the one that started this petition to try to get them kicked off the team 
as a result of this action. This is a quote from her mom. There's no two sides about that flag. That means hatred. That's what it stands for, for us. Okay, well, if there's no two sides about it, why would you say that's what it stands for, for us? If, if there's no two sides, then wouldn't it stand that for everyone? But anyway, I digress. We were oppressed with that flag. They used it when they burned crosses in our ancestors' yards. When it was railed around on horses, I don't know what history you're reading, but if you read the U.S. history, it tells you exactly what that flag stands for and what it means, especially to African Americans. Again, why saying what it means to African Americans if there's no two sides to it? If it's so cut and dry, then why do you have to add the disclaimer there? Anyway, you know, again, that's just me being overly analytical. But if this is really the intention here, like if you really believe these, what, seven or eight high school girls that happened to be on the cheer squad, that they were really posting this because we really hate black people, so we're going to get together and take this picture, and, and that'll stick it to the black people. Does anyone really believe that was the motivation? And if so, why would they pose with a t-shirt that says, I heart redneck boys? You don't have to dig super deep. It's not a really deep theological or philosophical message here. It's pretty cut and dry and, and pretty out in the open. Like You don't have to do a lot of context clue digging to get to the real intended message underneath all of this. This is obviously something that they were doing that they thought would either be silly or fun, whatever. But the point is, the idea that this was done with some kind of racial animus inside, that's just stupid. Why not just pose with the actual rebel flag if that were the intention in the case? Uh... I don't think that even that necessarily would have meant that racism is the only way to interpret that, but if that's what they were going for, why couch it and try to hide it under this? If you've ever met an actual real racist, they don't hide their racism. They're pretty darn open about it. And so they're trying to do like they're trying to make the case that that was the motivation behind it. I just don't buy that. I, I don't buy it at all. It doesn't make sense to me. And furthermore, on all of this, the flags, even if you think that the flag is bad, no matter how bad a flag is, like even if we're talking about the straight up Nazi flag or the, the, the sickle and hammer or uh, North Korea or China, like Mao Zedong's China, that kind of thing, uh, those are flags that I wouldn't use as symbols because of their association with mass murderers and that kind of thing, and, and that's obvious. But even those which are the worst possible examples we could come up with, the flag didn't oppress anybody. Nazism did oppress people, socialism did oppress people, and actually socialism still does oppress some people, depending on where you are in the world. But even so, it's not the flag that's oppressing people. That, that's one thing that, like, the flag is oppressing me. No, the flag's not oppressing you. Like, the flag, you can make the case that it's a bad symbol, that it's a symbol we shouldn't use. Like, you can have that discussion, and, and I'm open to having that discussion. But you can't make the case that the flag itself is oppressing you. Flags don't do that. That's not a, not a thing. Uh, but anyway, this is another quote from the, the same lady, the mom of this black cheerleader who was offended by this and started the petition. The first thing I thought was, how bold of them. You can cheer for black football players, you cheer for black basketball players, and you cheer with two black cheerleaders on your side, and this is what you put up? Wouldn't that be pretty solid evidence that these girls aren't racist? 
I mean, granted, I don't know a whole lot about Daphne High School. I don't know what the racial demographics are. Frankly, don't care all that much. But I assume, based on what this woman who does have a daughter at Daphne High, based on what she's saying, that there is at least a significant portion of the basketball team and the football team that are black, and also they have teammates on their team that are also black, isn't that a pretty good case for these girls not... I mean, maybe even if there's one racist on the team, that that was not the intent of the group? I mean, if you have a real genuine racist that finds black people detestable and disgusting and doesn't want to be around them, you would tend to think that that person wouldn't want to be on the same team with a black person, sharing space with them, spending time with them, practicing with them... Uh, in you know, in the locker room, on the football field, on the basketball court, voluntarily choosing to spend time around black people and doing so around other teams which have a lot of black people on them in which they are cheering for them to do well. I tend to think that, like, I don't know, Mrs. Hitler probably doesn't do that. Or other people that might be racist if, if it meant they had to cheer in favor of black athletes and do so side-by-side side with other black cheerleaders, they'd probably be like, yeah, you know what, I'm out. This is actually a pretty good reason for thinking that what they did was not racially motivated, and that they don't hate black people, and that using that symbol, even if it was maybe unwise or insensitive, was not intended to be something that was spurring on of racial hatred or trying to communicate that. See, that seems to me to be the much safer, more plausible explanation for what happened at Daphne High if you're looking at all of the context clues here. But here's the thing that I would ask, and, and I'm just going to go straight to the scripture on this one because I think that this is the model that works best, and, and this actually isn't exclusive to just disputes over things that might involve race. This goes to just the human experience overall. The biblical model for something like this, if you're having some kind of problem with another person, is to go to the person and to get an explanation from them first. And if you believe that them to be an error, maybe go back later with another person to try to talk to them and, and see if this problem that you're having can be resolved. Not ignoring that, going straight to creating a petition to get them kicked off of their high school cheerleading team, that seems to not be the correct way to handle a position like this, to just going over their head. This is what bothers me so much about this. They're bullying a bunch of teenage girls. Do you feel really big and strong and powerful and influential because you're, you're picking on a bunch of teenage girls? I mean, like, I don't think it was necessarily, especially, you know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, probably the smartest thing to do. But is this really something worth, I mean, if you've ever hung around high school athletes, and I have quite a bit, this is something that's super important to them. Sometimes it's like their whole life. I don't know if it is in the case of these cheerleaders, but like, you're, you're really trying to take that away from them for something that at the very worst is probably just a bad judgment call? That you know, was probably just intended to be a, a goofy, silly thing for them to do, and they may not have even realized what they were doing was something that was going to be, you know, perceived this way. Because for many people, it's not. I actually go over, in another Daily Dose of Stupid, I think, or it may not be a Daily Dose of Stupid, but in another segment at some point, 
actually went over through human communication theory and how symbols can mean different things to different people and, and there could be miscommunication that causes animosity despite that not being the intent of either party. So I highly recommend going back and watching that. But just looking at this, I don't understand why that would be the only logical conclusion as this person seems to assert. And to another thing too, again, trying to take the, the racial aspect out of it and just going to the human condition here, do we really, really want, just sort of generally speaking, do we want our high schools policing the social media pages of students and what they do when they're not on campus or not in the care of the school? Because that seems to me to be a pretty darn slippery slope. Like, I don't, I don't want the school policing that kind of behavior. I don't really think that's any of the school's business. Now, maybe if it happens on school grounds, I mean, none of the girls are even wearing a cheerleading uniform. I assume that all those girls just happen to be on the cheerleading squad, but it's not like this was posted to the official school page. It's not like they were doing this with school uniforms or cheerleading uniforms on. Like, there doesn't really seem to be any association with the cheerleading team or the school itself, and yet we're trying to socially engineer uh, behavior based on something that some people don't like and, and trying to take privileges away from somebody, even though their action, whether you could argue whether it was okay or, or not okay, acceptable or not acceptable, you certainly can't argue that it had anything to do with the school. I just don't understand all of that. So here's sort of my counter question to all of this. What would have happened if you reversed it? Again, a very simple test to see if something is, is racist or maybe over the top or whatever. What if you had a group of black cheerleaders posing with a Black Lives Matter shirt? What do you think the, the reaction would have been there? Well, we don't really have to wonder because that's happened. In fact, something that's much more directly supportive of Black Lives Matter has happened. And by the way, keep in mind that the rebel flag has, yes, been used as a symbol of the Klan before, but not exclusively. And when it comes to Black Lives Matter, that's an actual organization that has a creed and a, a statement of goals, many of which are highly Marxist in nature and anti-family, anti-God, anti-government, anti-country, all of those things. The rebel flag has been used by some really evil, hateful, racist groups, but Black Lives Matter is an actual organization with a unified theme. And yet, this is something that you can see from the Bowie State cheerleaders. You can see this. And uh, this isn't something that happens, like, at a not-official event. This is an actual routine the cheerleaders were doing as a part of the cheerleading team at a competition. You couldn't make the case that this was in no way associated with the school. Do you know how many conservatives and right-leaning people were calling for all of these women who uh, not only participated in this event, but did so in a very public way as in the official capacity of being a cheerleading team for Bowie State? You know how many conservatives were really upset about this and tried to get them kicked off the team? None that I could find. I don't even remember this being a big news story when it happened. See, that highlights a difference in the thinking of somebody on the right and the somebody on the left. The people on the left want to punish and socially engineer out any behavior that they deem is unacceptable. 
person on the right may see that and say, well, that's dumb. They shouldn't do that. And I don't like that. It bothers me because Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization that espouses the destruction of the Western of Western civilization and the nuclear family as a good thing. But as horrible as that may be, as much as it may make me personally upset, I don't want to kick them off the cheerleading team for that. I don't want to ruin that person's life because I happen to have a disagreement with them. One of the maxims of this show is that disagreement isn't hate. And I think this illustrates that principle pretty well. So the, the natural counter to this may be, yeah, but the thing is, and I've heard this so many times since this whole debate started, there's Black Lives Matter, the organization, and there's also Black Lives Matter, just the slogan that people sometimes use to uh, communicate something that's not connected to all the other stuff that the organization believes in. Oh, so you're saying that there are multiple ways that using that phrase could be interpreted, you know, kind of like the rebel flag, that it could be interpreted as racial hatred, and it could also be interpreted as just, I like the South and I like where I'm from, and I like the symbol and think it looks cool. By the way, I think that we need to be aware of how symbols and words and things that we use could be misconstrued. I think that's a good thing. Then it's one of the reasons that when I did a video just recently on whether or not Christians should use the rebel flag, I kind of leaned on the side of it's probably not a good idea. Like, what do you really gain from it? The risk outweighs the potential reward. But at the same time, I find it funny that all the people that are saying, well, you know, with Black Lives Matter, there's just nuance there. And you need to understand that not every single person that is using the slogan or using the hashtag or wears a BLM shirt is supporting the Black Lives Matter organization at the national level. That A lot of them don't even realize it is an organization, which, by the way, is true. It's I've said that on the show before, but I'm saying if that is going to be your defense, extend that same level of grace to these teenage girls that I very much doubt, especially considering they cheer for black athletes on a team with black athletes on their cheerleading squad, that these girls have some kind of deep-seated racial animosity that they were trying to communicate with this picture. It's never a good idea that when a perceived action can pre be perceived a one way that is mostly benign, and another one that is incredibly evil and wicked that we always rush to the worst possible interpretation of said action. I think that it's 100% rational, reasonable, and more importantly, Christian to at least when we can, or unless we have good reason to, do otherwise, always assume the best possible interpretation out of people. We might get disappointed from time to time, but ultimately, I think that that's the better default mode to have, to just assume that people don't hate us or they don't mean things the worst possible way that they can, to assume that they're trying to do the right thing here. But if we are going to hold ourselves to that standard, we need to, or if we're going to hold people that we dislike to that standard, uh, that we like to that standard, we also have to hold people that we dislike or that may not necessarily agree with us to that same standard as well. That's the fair way to handle it. And I think that everybody on both sides would benefit if we could do that. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. 
Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. And we are continuing our series in 1 Samuel. So you may recall that the previous chapter that we were covering, that Saul disobeyed God and Samuel essentially told Saul that, well, because of this, because of your sin, that your crown and your throne are going to be taken away from you. God is going to put it to somebody that is more fit to be the king of Israel, more fit to lead his people than you are. And Saul, of course, is understandably very distraught about this, but this is how Samuel's reaction goes in, in the aftermath of those happenings. If you'll look in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Now, this is a really interesting scenario because with the exception of maybe one or two other passages, there's almost never a time where deception is actually viewed in a positive light in the Bible. But first of all, is this really deception? It's definitely pretense. I, I think that you couldn't make the argument that it's not pretense that what God instructs Samuel to do is to go and make offering. But there is pretense there. Like, he's actually going to anoint the new king, but in order to safeguard his life, God comes up with this plan, which is very reasonable, is to just take a sacrifice with you, and if anybody asks, tell them that you're going there to sacrifice to God, which is also true. He does actually engage in sacrifice. He does take the the heifer with him to go and offer up to God. But it's just, it's really interesting to me that this is one of the very few times in Scripture where deception is painted almost in a positive light. Like, it's something that is done to protect Samuel's life here. And I don't know, like, it's, it's an odd story to have to deal with and to have to think about, but it does show that there are some extenuating circumstances where I think that even if it's not straight up, you know, untruthfulness, because Samuel's not untruthful here, but he is certainly sort of hiding the ball a little bit. I think that that's certainly safe to say. But I also want to point to a couple of other moral quandaries that we can pick out of this particular biblical story. First of all, Lord, the Lord and Samuel have both grieved quite a bit over Saul. We've seen this in multiple parts of the story that we've covered already that they are upset that Saul has not turned out the way that he should have, that he has, in some respects, been a good king, but especially recently his behavior has not been in synchronization with the will of God. He has openly subverted God's will and rebelled against him, acting in disobedience. 
And it's interesting to me that as sorrowful as God is, it seems like Samuel's more so, or at the very least, it's lingering longer with Samuel. Now think about this. Who had more right to be upset at Saul? I mean, it wasn't Samuel's words that Saul disobeyed. It was God's. It wasn't Samuel's will that is subverted by Saul going rogue and doing his own thing. It's God's. It wasn't Samuel that chose Saul. God did. And so if we were to look at this sort of, you know, from the, the meta level here, sort of at the 20,000 foot level looking down at the situation, it's easy to say, well, shouldn't God be the one that's having a harder time getting over this? But it's not. God's the one that actually looks down to Samuel and says, how long are you going to grieve after Saul? Let's move along. You go anoint the new king. It's interesting that God's the one pushing him along and telling him to get over it. And I think that that's a pretty human thing, actually. I mean, there are times, and, and this is certainly not the only time this happens in the Scripture, there are certain times where God has to tell a person, even somebody as faithful as Samuel, even somebody that is in tune with God's will as Samuel is, being a prophet, God's literal mouthpiece, a representative for him here on earth, he's saying, okay, that's enough grieving time, let's go ahead and move on to different things. Now, God grieves too, but he's saying at a certain point, grief is no longer appropriate. And that's something that's hard as a human being for us to pull ourselves out of. Sometimes we get so distraught over things that happen to us. We'll get so angry or upset, and it's just hard for us to move on. But God, an eternal being, he has the ultimate foresight and also the ultimate level of perception, the ultimate perspective on everything that's going on. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it's much easier for God. And maybe easy is not the right word, but it certainly gives him the perspective he needs to say, all right, now it's time to move on to something else. It's, it's time that we were no longer focused on our grief. When it came to Saul, we need to start being productive again. And it's God, not Samuel, that sort of kickstarts that process, which, I mean, totally makes sense if you understand the nature of God. But then Saul, or sorry, Samuel's immediate response to this call is, well, I can't do that. Saul will kill me. We tend to think of Saul's descent into his rebellious phase as not really being until there's that whole tiff with him and David. Of course, he does defy God no less than two times for sure before that event takes place. But we kind of think of Saul as, at the very least, a understandable and sympathetic person, even if, you know, up until the point where he's trying to actively kill David or, or wants to subvert him. But here we see Saul seemingly willing to kill Samuel to protect his throne. Now, maybe Saul would have done that, we don't know, but there's something that has convinced Samuel that Saul is willing to take his life to try to prevent him from anointing a new king. That's how much Samuel believes Saul's throne and crown means to him. And Samuel knew Saul pretty well. 
He was a very wise person. So if he believes this, there's a good reason for him believing that. Which means that it's probably true. It's probably a fair assessment of the situation. That Saul has so fallen victim to his own pride and his own lust for power that he is willing to kill an innocent person to protect it. You see, that's why God understood Saul is no longer fit to be king. When you have reached a level of depravity to where you will take the life of another person to protect your own self-interest, not to protect your life, not to protect the life of others, not even to protect your own safety or your family's safety, but just because you want more money, more power, more influence, there's not a whole lot that can be done at that point. God can save anybody, and I know anyone can change, but God's looking at this situation and going, this is not the person that I can have leading my people. He's just no longer fit for that task. And that's why we see the events starting to unfold as we can. And it's interesting that God makes sure that Samuel understands he's in charge of this process. The battle is the Lord's. He doesn't dismiss Samuel's concerns. He doesn't say, no, Samuel, that's crazy. I mean, you've got me on your side, and so you should just not be afraid of those things. And it's not what he does. He, he plays it clever. He plays it kind of close to the chest. And what the Lord does is he says, I'm going to be the one to pick the new king. You know that, right? I will designate who among the sons of Jesse will be my chosen to lead Israel. I'm at the center of that process, not you. And Samuel wasn't being, you know, presumptuous on that. He's the one that chose Saul, and he's the one that's going to choose David. I think Samuel would come to expect that, but God is essentially letting Samuel know, or, or maybe even letting the readers know, you know, several thousand years after these events take place, that God is going to be in control of this process. And that's really the core message at the middle of all of this, and the, the narrative that we're about to see unfold, this drama between King Saul and King David. The core of that struggle is that God's in command regardless. God was in command when Saul was king. God is in command when David is king. And if he had wanted David to be on the throne earlier, he would have been. This is all something that God has orchestrated, that it's all according to God's plan, that he is the mastermind behind all of this. And God is instrumental in that process. And frankly, I take a great deal of comfort in that. Because especially as somebody who does the news and, and pays attention to world events on a daily basis, it's easy to get flustered. It's easy to look at this and go, ah, everything's just falling around, uh, falling down around us. It's going to be so bad. There's, there's going to be no recovery from any of this. Uh, and then God can come in and remind us, hey, I'm in control. If there is a person who is a leader in your country or there's some kind of movement going on, whatever, ultimately nothing is happening without me taking notice of it and taking proactive steps to make things go my way in the future. I mean, to the outside observer that doesn't have all this background of what God's doing to set these things up, this situation looks really, really bad. Having somebody that is willing to kill another human being to protect his power and influence in the country, having that person as the leader of your country sitting on the throne, 
That's a bad, bad situation. But why is it okay, and why does everything turn out all right in the end, and they actually wind up with a much better king than Saul anyway? Because God's at the core of it. Because he's the one protecting Israel. And he'll do the same thing for our country. We've had some really, really rotten leaders in the past. President, local leaders, Congress, so on and so forth. But ultimately, no matter who is in charge of the country or local town or municipality or the state, or even if America as a whole ceased to exist, ultimately God is at the core of all of that. And His will is going to be done regardless of what happens in this temporary world. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.